everybody. Welcome to part two of my discussion of the films of 2014 with my friend, film critic, filmmaker, uh, producer at Steelhouse Productions in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Mr. Jeff Houston. Uh, my name is Nick Flora, currently recording this intro from the ice planet of Hoth, known as Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, it's cold, guys. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, I hope you enjoyed last week's episode. If you haven't listened to it, that's kind of weird that you're going with number two. You know, kind of admire your style. Uh, last week, Mr. Houston and I counted down our numbers 10 through 6 of the year in movies. This episode, we will reveal the top five. Uh, you know, is Blended going to make the list? I don't know. How about Sex Tape? It might be in there. Um, spoiler, it's not in there. Okay, of course, this Sunday night uh, is the Academy Awards, and I think I speak for everyone when I say, really? It hasn't happened yet? But for real, it feels like it should have happened already, right? I mean, I love it. It's my favorite night in television, and I will be live-tweeting the fool out of it, trust me. So if you want to follow at Nick Flora, if you want to hear my snarky remarks on celebrities not being able to uh, read teleprompters properly, um, like I can do any better. But anyway, uh, last week on Facebook and Twitter, which is at WhoWritesPod, by the way, I asked for your personal favorite films of 2014. Since time permitting, I can't do a podcast with all of you. Maybe one day we can. Uh, but here's what you said. I'm going to read these straight from the internet. Um, so hang on, be patient with me. Let's see. From Twitter, at the Daily Claire said, uh, not going to lie, Captain America, Winter Soldier, and the final Hobbit films. Why would you lie about those? Uh, she also says, sadly, the Academy doesn't, quote, get Middle Earth. Um, yeah, I guess all those Oscars that the Return of the King got all those years ago didn't really mean anything, right? Who cares about those? Um, just kidding. Uh, she also says the theory of everything um, was amazing. And the short, the phone call, she was fortunate enough to screen it for the festival that put it on the short list. That's really cool. Um, and also, nice backdoor brag that you get to go to cool things like that. Uh, let's see. Rick Starr said Guardians of the Galaxy, Captain America were nice surprises. Also, he liked Jersey Boys, Selma, and Whiplash. Uh, Hannah Panak said Interstellar. Boyhood, Selma, Guardians of the Galaxy, and American Sniper were all ones that she enjoyed. And also the Mockingjay Part 1. You know. Uh, gotta love a little bit of Katniss. Let's see. Sarah Ritz- Ritzaup. Oh, I can't say your name. I'm sorry, Sarah. Sarah Ritzaup is my neighbor. I should be able to say your name. Uh, she said she enjoyed Get On Up a little too much. Chadwick Boseman, I applaud you, sir. I absolutely agree with that. Uh, great movie. Highly underrated. Or maybe under the radar a little bit too much. But uh, I really enjoyed it. I liked it a lot. And Chadwick Boseman was awesome. A great James Brown. Uh, Keith Cotton. Let's see, Keith. You see, you like the Lego movie and Interstellar. And uh, haven't had a chance to see any of the big hitters yet. But he liked Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> and uh, But not as much as Captain America. Haven't seen those big hitters. Only the small indie films like Guardians of the Galaxy and Captain America. Um, <laughs> sorry, Keith. I love you a lot. We both love Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Keith and I do. Uh, we have this bond, so I can jab at him a little bit. Um, Kath- Kathy Frazier Goodpaster said uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, and Chris Layton said that too, as well as Calvary. Jared Lowry, Guardians of the Galaxy. Jared Malament said Guardians of the Galaxy. Goodness gracious. As well as Chef, Song of the Sea, Wish I Was Here, and Calvary. Uh, Maddie Douglas said Birdman was amazing, but she also really liked What If. which is- Oh, that's that uh, Daniel Radcliffe little rom-com thing. Uh, I have not seen it. Sorry to be so condescending in my description. Uh, Ronnie Dennis said Whiplash, Birdman, and Boyhood. Chris Stimson said uh, Unbroken, Captain America Winter Soldier, and Guardians of the Galaxy. I mean, come on. Those two keep popping up because they're really great. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, Justin Uncensored said. I don't think that's 
Justin Uncensored, that's not your last name. Um, and also John Wick was an awesome shoot 'em up. I didn't see that one. Uh, probably won't. That's Keanu Reeves, right? Yeah, I kind of think that's not for me. Um, but I have heard people say they love that movie. Uh, Ashley Thomas said Guardians of the Galaxy and Captain America 2. Uh, and she also wants you, everybody to know that she's a nerd. We know, Ashley. But it's okay because we love you. Um, thank you guys for chiming in. Uh, let's see. There might have been more. Let me look really quick. Ah, yes, there's a few more. Uh, Brian Holt says, Whiplash, and I thoroughly enjoyed Winter Soldier, despite some clumsy exposition, and uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. I agree. Uh, all great. And let's see. Dave Trout from Under the Radar says the movie that he liked the most and was the most impactful for him was Zach Braff's Wish I Was Here. I have to agree with that. And uh, Internet Bad Boy Daniel Johnson said that Interstellar and Boyhood were the only ones he liked this year. I'm sorry you're so hard to please, Daniel Johnson. Maybe 2015 will give you movies that you can truly enjoy. Maybe more than just two. Gosh, man, we're really going to try. <laughs> just kidding. Thank you guys so much uh, for writing in. I love hearing from you guys. And uh, all great choices, the ones I saw anyway. And uh, I'm glad we have so many movie nerds that listen to this podcast. You know, you uh, you do a podcast about 364 days of the year about music. And then you talk about movies every once in a while. And you wonder if people are going to be like, what? Okay. But to appease a few of you, uh, at the end of this episode, Jeff and I do jump into a little bit of music talk of our favorite albums of the year, as well as our favorite television shows of the year. And uh, that's why I love Jeff so much, because he's, he's just a fan of things. And I, I love talking to people who are fans of things, especially when it comes to, to art, like movies and music and television. So let's not beat around the bush anymore. Let's get into it. Here's part two of my discussion with Jeff Houston of our favorite films of the year. What was your number five, Mr. Houston? My number five, um, the uh, aforementioned, uh, many people have said, uh, majorly snubbed movie, Selma. Um, this... Uh, you know, it, it's it's a biopic genre movie, mm-hmm. but uh, is it, it, I don't know if it redefines the genre. I don't know if I'll go that far, but it certainly um, it excels in the genre in ways that a lot of biopics don't. Basically, both the instantaneous and the lingering impression of Selma for me is how visceral it is. It's often a gut punch. It just kind of blindsides you in, in very intense ways. And it's strengthened by avoiding many tired cliches of the biopic genre, mainly that it's not some sedate memorial of an American icon that keeps its heroes safely up on the pedestal. Director Ava DuVernay is literally taking King off of that pedestal. And so the events that are captured here, which is a three-month period of time, uh, January to March in 1965, it feels immediate, relevant, and it does not feel like a 50-year-old story. Uh, The ways in which Selma avoids the typical biopic staples is subtle, but yet it's also pretty extensive. First and foremost, it's not a cradle-to-grave life story of Dr. King. Uh, but rather it's a specific three-month moment in time that embodies Martin Luther King's entire legacy. Second, the title itself is actually very appropriate to the material because this film is really about the march on Selma uh, for equal voting rights that happened in 1965. King just happens to be the central character of that story. And then in addition to him, and here's what's really great about the film, and this is something that, well, first I'll describe it. We see full depictions of the grassroots protesters who were organizing in Selma long before King ever got there, like years ahead of that. And these behind the scenes heroes are not just peripheral side characters like they would be in most biopics. 
They're the people that King needed to achieve historical ends in this moment of time. And we see them fleshed out. We see them explored. And we see them strategize and make courageous decisions in their own right. And so the fact that it's, um, and this is something that Ava DuVernay brought to the film. She took the existing script that had been in development for almost a decade. And the, that script largely uh, more than half of the film took place back in Washington, D.C. Uh, between King and Lyndon Johnson. Mm -hmm. And she said, we, need to, we can't have these, these heroes of the movement be on the periphery. We need to explore them and honor them uh, and really examine their contribution. And that's what this film does. And then beyond all of that, Ava DuVernay and actor David Oyelowo, who plays Dr. King, they also paint an intimate and deep portrait of the man himself, like you would expect from a biopic. So it avoids all these cliches, it still achieves what you want, which is painting a portrait of the man in a complex way, particularly in the most daring element of the film, I think, and that the film doesn't avoid King's much rumored infidelities. It actually faces them head on. Uh, it does it in a very appropriate way, not by depicting them, but by how it affects his marriage mm -hmm. relationship with Coretta, uh, Scott King, as well as it becomes relevant to how events unfold. It affects his ability or inability to be involved at certain times. So it's actually relevant to the story. So, uh, and, and then from a stylistic perspective, it felt like she, I don't know if this was her intent by any means, but it feels like DuVernay is in one sense taking the intense, raw anger of Spike Lee's do the right thing, something that's very volatile and aggressive, and yet somehow combines that with something that's a lot more classical, like uh, for people who are you know familiar with film history, Elia Kazan's On the Waterfront, a film from the 1950s, which is also about, it, it's a union film about uh, people being, you know, their rights suppressed, um, but done in a more classical sense. And it's almost like she's combining uh, thematic elements of those two, as well as stylistic elements of those two kinds of approaches to filmmaking. And it really just makes this story come alive. So even with the controversial dramatic liberties considered, you know, uh, specifically related to LBJ, mm -hmm. which I think that stuff has been way overblown as far as I'm yeah. concerned. Uh, Selma is an important document of historical awareness and a real cinematic triumph. Um, and that's why I have it in my top five. Absolutely. I do like this trend that's seemingly happening now of not the entire lifespan biopic, but like Lincoln or like this where it's, so yes. it focuses on a very specific thing. Because a lot of times those biopics like A Walk the Line or, or Ray or something like that can gloss over like, be, like yeah, this is important. And it They're trying to cram too much. It's too much into one. And, and while I do enjoy both of those films, I think this is much more, they're, they're much, there's much more to unpack in each story than than you know the seven minutes or whatever they give in, in, a, in a normal biopic and so thinking of it as a story front to front to back and then and then martin luther king as not the martin luther king giant that we know but as just like a centralized character in this story right is that's really fascinating to me and yeah they, i love that they that they focused on and a lot of the heroes were the grassroots members and I mean, it's just something you don't often see. It's like, well, no, right. the focus needs to be on the characters that the, or the, you know, these names that the audience knows. Mm -hmm. you know? Well, in fact, there's one sequence. Um, it, it's, uh, there's a couple different uh, marches that happen on a bridge. And I don't know, have you seen the film? Yes. And, you know, the first, that first march doesn't include Dr. King at all. 
and that's an extended sequence. Yeah. And so a lot of filmmakers in the past with biopics would be like, oh, we can't be that long without our main historical figure in the film. He's, he's literally watching it on TV. Exactly. Yeah. And so um, they would find a way to rewrite it or something or combine elements. Mm. And here... DeVernay says, no, this is how it happened, and we need to depict it that way. And to me, it becomes more visceral. And because of the excellent craftsmanship, we don't miss the fact that King is off screen, despite what a powerful presence Oyelowo makes him to be mm. on screen. Everything's so powerful. Everything's so well, well executed and brought to life. Yeah. That, um, yeah, it's just, it's, and well, in fact, with Oyelowo, it, it really is. Very unfortunate that he's not up for best actor. Oh, absolutely, um, he would likely be a front runner to win it at this point. Even though there's some, you know, great nominees within that category. I think um, he'll have his day. I don't think this, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. This this puts him on the map for sure, and I don't think he's going anywhere yeah. anytime soon. Yeah. There's um, uh, what was I going to say? I just completely blanked on that. Well, that's always fun. Uh, <laughs> oh, It'll shoot. come back to you. It in the middle will of... come back to me. Yeah. Oh, there's something else. Oh, I know what I was gonna say. What was interesting, a little bit like a little bit of payoff moment for me this year was uh, one of my movies that almost made the top ten for me was the Roger Ebert Life Itself mm -hmm. documentary, mm -hmm. and uh, Ava DuVernay, in the the director of this movie, is in that movie. Yes, uh, as and she tells this incredibly touching story. I mean, there's been parts of the documentary I've just shown friends, and that's the part mm -hmm. where it talks about her making this short film about her her aunt who passes away, and, and Roger Ebert was really nice. Uh, she actually met him as a young girl, and he was really nice, and later on in life, uh, she had the opportunity to show that film at a festival and meet him and, and re-meet him and tell him again, you know, you know, you're a, a large reason why I'm here and all mm -hmm. this stuff. And then to see her work now, like that story, which, which resonated with me in that documentary to see it pay off by like seeing this, I had never seen anything she'd done before. Mm -hmm. It was just sort of this profound bookend moment that you don't really expect to get in one year. Right. But, uh, and I'd seen those movies almost back to back and I was like, wait a second, I recognize that name. Mm -hmm. But, uh, that was just a little fun little moment. And which by the way, Roger Deber, that would, that life itself movie, I would I would highly recommend. Yeah, it's not on my top ten list, but you know, it, it's such a you know, it's obviously a must see for film fans. Mm. But even just people who are interested in fascinating portraits of people. Oh my gosh! Uh, this yeah. is a fascinating portrait, part of which includes what you just described here, the strange dichotomy that Ebert was able to achieve of an objectivity of a film critic and maintaining that, while also being a huge champion for up-and-coming filmmakers who deserved being champions. Yes. And his ability to kind of walk both sides of that line, he just did it so naturally. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, this, that's a great life story. That uh, Especially for a guy that yeah. we kind of see as, as being a little bit gruffer or yeah. hard opinion, he seemed to have a big heart as well. That absolutely. Was, that was absolutely, that was mm -hmm. extremely moving. My number five was a movie we've already talked about a couple times, so I won't talk too much about it, but it's it's Gone Girl. Uh, it's It's... On this, on the service, like we said about this missing person who, you know, uh, who is presumed dead, and, and and it's her marriage that winds up being the autopsy on the table. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's a very good point. David Fincher, uh, his in intricate and richly satisfying adaptation of this novel of the same name. It's intense, uh, divisive, yet expansive psycholo psychological thriller. Uh, represents an exceptional pairing of filmmaker and material, as we talked about, uh, fully expressing Fincher's cynicism about the information age and our cultural fascination with the terror and violence uh, lurking beneath the surfaces of contemporary American life. It's laced with suspense, mystery, dry wit, uh, as well as often or as outstanding performances from Ben Affleck, Rosamund Pike, 
who gave uh, one of my favorite performances of the year. I was completely blown away by her. Absolutely. Um, I, I love the look of the film. Fincher has this distinct tone to his films that lets you know something is bubbling beneath the surface. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the supporting performances, I'd like to highlight as well. For even from you know Casey Wilson, Patrick Fugit, Carrie Coon, Kim Dickens, uh, as the Tyler Perry. The, Tyler yeah. Perry. Mm-hmm. I was about to say the, one of the biggest surprise. Uh, performances of the year for me is Tyler Perry and maybe yeah. that's just my own sort of I am unaware of you know I think the only movie I've ever seen him in was the uh, 2009 Star Trek reboot where mm-hmm. he was in one scene but man he he was outstanding and believable and he was sort of this Johnny Cochran type character not not in the way his sort of tone and delivery but you know he's this high profile lawyer who's brought in for these really high profile cases he's you know, not uh, a, a, it wouldn't be strange to see him on like a Nancy Grace as we sort of are mm-hmm. depicted in the movie. But man, that guy who blew me away, and I hope we see him in more uh, more roles such like as that. This. Yeah, yeah. And but I mean, just upon uh, repeat viewings, it's just all around fantastic modern day mystery thriller. With but that doesn't even begin to encapsulate what this movie uh, is and what it did to me. I thought it was excellent, and uh, it's definitely one of those like a good mystery novel. Uh, with each repeat viewing, like, like as you said, like it just un- unveils even more of sort of how this it's it's sort of like taking, it unveils genius. <laughs> it does. It's sort of like taking the the front off of a grandfather clock and seeing how it all works. It's mm-hmm. And it, it blows me away. And so number five, Gone Girl, definitely recommend it. Well, I'm glad you also highlighted some of the cast here, particularly the two supporting actresses, Carrie Coon, who plays Affleck's sister, yeah. twin sister, actually. Um, and Kim Dickens. Kim Dickens, who plays one of the really the lead police officer investigator investigating this whole thing. And the reason I, I, I like highlighting those people, not only are the performances really spectacular, um, but some of the uh, accusations of this film that really I don't think were attached to the book, but have been attached to the film is that the film is misogynist, right. that it's sexist. And uh, because of the amazing Amy character and what we learn about her, mm-hmm. um, which I really have a huge problem with that misogynist label on a couple levels. Too. One, these other women in the film oh clearly gosh. show that this is not a misogynist movie. Two, it's written by a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then <laughs> and then three, it's just unfair. Basically, you know, actresses can't win in this politically correct culture. It's like on one hand, there's a complaint of well, we, you know, uh, women just get the nice, you know, women have to be nice roles and the conventional roles. And they're not giving anything daring. Yeah. And then when they're actually given something daring, oh, look how it depicts women. And they they just can't win. I know. It drives me crazy. There's going to be a critic out there for everything. So I know. Just make whatever art you want to make. I Don't even worry about it. it that severely ticked me off too, especially mm-hmm. because I would say that the most outstanding performance is not to take anything away from from Ben Affleck were by women in this movie. Absolutely. Well, and and then even to praise another woman, um, Reese Witherspoon, who we've talked about, she is a producer on this film. Yes. She bought the property. She's the one who purchased it to film it in with the intent of playing amazing Amy. When Fincher came on board, he basically said, Reese, we need to go in a different direction. Mm. And she was cool with that. She agreed with that. Wow, I didn't know that. And so props to Reese Witherspoon to say, I am going, this is the director I want, yeah. and I'm going to let him do his thing. And uh, and 
again, Rosamund Pike just was a perfect choice. Yeah. And and so now we get this revelation of this actress who's been a supporting character in a lot of like British movies and period pieces. Right. And now we've just she's she's got this stage and uh, hopefully we'll get to see some more exciting things from her as opposed to the traditional stuff she's been kind oh, of I have kept no doubt. to. Now know. that she's sort of un- uncapped this, you know, the, mm-hmm. our view of her, I, I have no doubt that, that she's going to have a long career. And let me ask you this. Um, I've seen the movie twice. Me too. And it seemed to me, particularly in the first half of the film, that that all of Amy's lines were intentionally dubbed in post and not it and almost i could be wrong but it seemed like it was so intentional as to create almost this ethereal kind of thing where she's almost there's something mystical about her in a way mm-hmm. um i don't know if you got that vibe at all if that's just me in my own head or it didn't resonate with me but it's, okay. very, it's very possible yeah upon next viewing which there will be because it is one of those david fincher has that sort of chris nolan quality where like every time you watch it oh my you're gosh, like yeah. you you know, it's like, was this the same movie? I'm seeing it in a different... It's like, right. it's almost like you got another alternate cut every time. Yeah. He does that so well. Especially Social Network is one of those for me too. But uh, no, I didn't. I don't know. I have to go back yeah. and see that. It just, whatever it was, there was just something that, again, it just, it made it kind of, I don't know. There was there was another element that made it uh, meta-human in a way. There is a definitely, I've noticed the second time around that like the manipulation starts from the Absolutely. beginning. Yeah. From mm-hmm. almost every character, you don't really know... You know, not to mm-hmm. give anything away, but there is like there is something. I think at this point, a lot of people know, but just I don't, just to touch yeah, on. I don't that. want to spoil. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Number four. Uh, number four is for me the most underappreciated film of 2014. It's left behind. <laughs> right. We're gonna get there eventually. Literally yeah. is that was the worst movie I saw all year. <laughs> Literally watching Left Behind was like, now who thinks humans act like this? <laughs> There is no correlation to how humans are with how the humans are in this movie. And I'll, that's all I'll leave it. It's like an alien made that movie. It is. It, it is like an alien observed humanity and said, let's make a movie about these humans we've observed. It's bizarre. Anyway, uh, my number four is a Western called The Homesman. Uh, the Homesman is the best and best looking Western since Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven over 20 years ago. Wow. And, and it is so because it's as artistically rich as it is emotionally and spiritually unsettling. Um, this whole element of unsettling keeps popping mm-hmm. up in our in our choices. It's a theme. But it's that combination of artistic richness and spiritual unease that makes this a very potent experience. Uh, the story is about a grizzled cowboy played by Tommy Lee Jones who also directs the film. And he helps a lonely spinster played by Hilary Swank, who well, she has to take three women from her small town who have gone insane uh, as a result of neglect or abuse or some personal tragedies in their lives. And they're insane to the point of like, almost demonic-like in a way. I mean, they're just, they've literally lost it. And she's supposed to bring them across the Western territory of the 1850s to a place out east where they can be helped. And Tommy Lee Jones is what's called a homesman who's helping her bring these ladies and make that trek. Uh, Some have called this a feminist Western, but I think that's way too easy of a reduction. It oversimplifies what this film is really doing. Uh, because the homesman examines the human condition at a much more primal and pure level than can be constrained by modern political labels and ideologies. This story and its characters serve as a metaphor for humanity itself, more specifically humanity's masculine and feminine duality 
of how the aggressive social Darwinism of humanity's masculine nature destroys the tenderness of feminine virtue and just slowly eats away until it drives it insane. It's hmm. it's kind of a bleak outlook on yeah. humanity. And the film's stark images also serve as bleak metaphors with a Western landscape that embodies the very nature of the film's themes and ideas, that life is a brutal, merciless reality in need of grace. And so that's it's not just about the bleakness, although it is a lot about that, but it's about how, particularly with Hilary Swank's character, she's desperate to find some grace in this world, and the men in particular are not providing it. They're mm -hmm. providing just the opposite. And so I think despite receiving, it actually received universally great reviews. Uh, but I suspect that there was a knee-jerk dismissal of this by critics uh, as it relates to putting it on their top 10 list or not. It didn't show up on a lot of top 10 yeah. lists. And, and I wonder if they just thought this was merely just some sort of passion project for Jones they mm -hmm. could dismiss, even though they gave it great reviews. Uh, but honestly, it's as confident and assured a directorial effort as you'll see. I mean, it is. I, I'll just. It is masterful. It is masterfully just conceived. It's very visionary. It's it's spectacular. It was spectacular to watch on a big screen canvas, which obviously at this point that's not going to be possible uh, for mm. most people. But it was just beautiful, although bleak images of the American West. Uh, Jones has really crafted a substantial work packed with power as well as some very poignant pathos, if I can keep you alliterating the word P, the letter P. Um, I mean, this is just basically just genuinely very thought-provoking and often disturbing look at humanity itself. It's not on the fast track of becoming a classic by any <laughs> means, but man, for me, it sure feels like a classic. And that's why I have The Homesman at number four. That's a movie that I totally forgot about. I didn't see it. Um, it was on my radar for a while. And I, now that you say that, I am surprised because it seemed like it was on a bunch of lists. It seems like it at least Taylor Swank was going to get nominated. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, not not that there was like a huge campaign for it, but it was definitely one of those where I was where I, when I saw. And as a, as a craft, it. it has all the elements working at such a high level that it does make me wonder if you took this same exact film, slapped directed Clint Eastwood on it, right? right. All of a sudden, it would be this huge awards contender. People yeah. would be talking about how it's so brilliant, just like Unforgiven, in so yeah. many ways. Uh, but you know, I think I do think people. Oh, it's Tommy Lee Jones. It's his second movie. Um, again, it was extremely well reviewed, but it's just like it's like they didn't seriously consider it because it didn't have some sort of campaign behind it that a name like Clint Eastwood automatically would have taken the same exact material and launched it right. just because of his name. But, well, that's yeah. one of the reasons why I like doing this podcast is so we can highlight yeah. such films as that because and that's definitely one that I want to check out. Uh, my number four is a, is a small little indie film. You probably haven't heard about it. Uh, it's called Interstellar. Um, <laughs> now, uh, this is a, a movie that everybody saw, I feel like, and a lot of people did, and it was, it was the topic of a lot of conversations um, for good reason, I think. And uh, there are people who are the haters and the people who are the lovers, and mm -hmm. I am a lover, Jeff. <clears throat> um, I bought in and because I wanted to, and uh, I, I'm an adult human who can make that decision for myself. <laughs> uh, but Chris Nolan's space epic, uh, pardon that pun, uh, uh, shoots for the moon uh, mm -hmm. in, in every aspect uh, from the cinematography to the score to the script uh, it's a high concept that keeps engaging you as if the, they're two steps ahead of you sort of in, in the dialogue urging uh, your attention to keep up and for me totally pays off uh, my mind was as wide open as my eyes for each frame and uh, I, I was pulled into this 
you know, not too distant futuristic world where Earth was dying and a few physicists, astronauts, and engineers were our only hope, uh, as well as Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um, uh, no, but I know it's a divisive film and there are a lot of critics who, who didn't buy into the premise from the get-go, uh, or, you know, there's a lot of exposition, uh, but like, I understand that you might not have to explain to an astronaut what a black hole is, but I'm not an astronaut <laughs> and I'm watching a movie. But uh, <laughs> I am the kind of moviegoer who wants to believe in the world and the story that's being presented. And I, and I love how even in such a grand sweeping epic film, at the heart was a simple bond between family and the constant emission. The time is the one enemy we can't outrun. Uh, and uh, these are some simple truths told on a, on a grand scale. And uh, this movie could have been complete utter garbage which it wasn't there are so many levels of it that i think are, are amazing and i think it's a um a, a, a momentous film uh but i can even if the rest of it was garbage the one scene there's a scene with matthew mcconaughey uh seeing video messages back from his son that, over like a 20-year period or something yes yeah. mm -hmm. uh, because of, of time and relativity um that absolutely wrecked me mm -hmm. and uh i think it was one of i think one of the most gripping and emotional scenes that I saw this year and uh, was just a complete mess in the theater uh, when watching it. But um, I, I, I think that's the, the, I love a good dichotomy and I love that at the heart of this film in, in all of the technobabble dialogue that I, I surely didn't understand, uh, but I tried my best to, it is, a, it is a, a, about, about family. It is about uh, simple truths, like I said, told on a grand scale. And so number four, I couldn't escape it. It had mm. to be interstellar. Yeah, I don't have Interstellar on my top 10, but I basically agree with everything you're saying. Uh, it was a powerful experience for me. And, uh, you know, Nolan is this rare film director that uh, a lot of times on film, you, you need to underplay things because you, when the camera's right in your face, it can come off as too melodramatic. He totally somehow has been able to achieve this level of opera uh, in his cinematic style that still feels very sincere that has a lot of conviction to it um and this might be his most operatic expression yet particularly because um his characters are certainly uh we're seeing the most emotional dynamics the most emotionally charged relationships particularly family relationships uh so there's a lot uh that's classic nolan as well as new territory that he's exploring here and yeah. i think he achieves it all very well to the point about um, a lot of the scientific exposition and stuff. Um, it didn't get too muddy for me. And even to the extent that I couldn't follow it, the important thing for me was I always knew what the stakes were. I always knew what the consequences are, uh, are possibly given what he just tried to unpack. I didn't follow it all, but I got the important stakes of what's about yeah. to unfold. And point. so the tension's there. And that's all I really need from that kind of exposition. Um, and then even, I, you know, the scene that got me was you know about halfway through there's a scene where uh, Anne Hathaway's character a lot of people actually some of the critics of the film complained about this scene because it's like why is this character who's previously just been a scientist unpacking something very emotional but even if you feel a disparity there the speech that she's given mm -hmm. it's like I believe what she's saying to the depths of my soul and it basically encapsulates how you know, we talk about love in sense of something that we can't quantify scientifically. And her, the whole theme of her speech is what's more quantifiable than something that even when a loved one has passed on and gone away, we still feel as strongly, if not more strongly than ever. Physically, the, scientifically, the evidence is gone. Yeah. And yet this 
overwhelming power remains, what is more quantifiable than that? And I, I just like, you know, <laughs> preach as know. I'm crying. And it's just like, I don't care if it was a little forced. I was on board with what he was saying. And yeah, I, I was moved by it. So yeah, everything. What I, I love it? Do you think, I wanted to ask you, that the Academy has against Christopher Nolan? <laughs> Um, well, I do think uh, this film in particular, I think there were so many high expectations. It was all the ex- part of the expectations included. This might be the time that we can finally show all our Oscar love. And then because of how divisive it was, mm. it just didn't end up being that thing um, in terms. Of, he hasn't been given any kind of love. Yeah, he's really never been all. directed before or never been nominated as Which director. It's insane before. to me. It's absolutely insane. And I and I think. I do think it just comes back to the numbers game we talked about at the top of the podcast. I think Nolan's probably consistently six, seven, and eight, just right on the outside of that top five looking in. Mm. And, um, and 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 also, and he he's on the negative side of that line because even though he's an auteur that makes very specific grand visions uh, from you know his own artistic sensibility, people on one hand see it as pop entertainment. And so they favor more towards the what they see as the independent voice without you know that's outside the studio system, and his day will come. Um, Interstellar just didn't end up being that, but uh, but yeah, whenever his day comes, and I think it will, it's already overdue. Right. So. I feel like every time a movie of his comes out, I'm like, well, this is going to be the one. Mm. Every every time since Dark Knight, but even before that, Prestige, their uh, Inception. Every, every I mean, he's one of my favorite filmmakers, and I'm like, nobody else is doing what he's doing. Right. Give this guy, you know, it, I mean, it certainly doesn't hold the weight for me that like I feel like it once did. I still can appreciate his art without the Academy appreciating it. But it's, Absolutely, one, it's yeah. one of those nice little like, like, come on, give the guy a statue. Yeah, or at uh, least a nomination. Yeah, I exactly. Mean, come on, yeah. Jeff. What is our next musical interlude? Well, it is from one of the major Oscar contenders this year. It's a film that's not on my top 10. Uh, I, I described earlier films that feel a little Oscar baity, um, a little like a masterpiece theater piece. Is that related to Warren Beatty? <laughs> yes, okay. exactly. Um, the Theory of Everything, which mm-hmm. is the story about Stephen Hawking and the relationship with his wife. Uh, and really more of this emotional story and uh, it's all about his life as a scientist too but um, but anyway it's a good film it's, sure. I don't think it's a great film I don't think it, you know but the film score is one of my favorite film scores Alexander of the Desplat, year right? Desplat? Uh, no uh, nice. Desplat did the score for the imitation game I switch those all the time yeah it's British yeah <laughs> the theory of everything um, the composer is Johan Johansson, oh, okay. who I believe, I don't know if he's Swedish or, or, Swedish or Finnish, but yeah. um, he, uh, he's, he's largely an independent artist who's started to get into film composition. And even though this score kind of feels like a very familiar Oscar type of nominated score, like the whole film feels like a familiar mm-hmm. Oscar yeah. movie, it's really beautiful. And this track, which is titled Cambridge 1963, is a great example of that.
now at this point we're gonna we're gonna go through our uh, three, two, and one picks. So these are, in our opinions, uh, favorite movies of the year. And like I said, this totally you know this could change in like a month or two or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm sure I don't know if you've ever re- revisited in years uh, after you sort of made this definitive list and had that sort of oh really mm-hmm. oh, okay like clearly like this was in the moment or not but. Uh, it is. It's fun and interesting to go back, even personally, and, and look back at some that I've picked. I was like, "Oh, I love that movie," and then you mm-hmm. see it again in a different part of your life, and you're like, "Oh, really?" But <laughs> but but even in the immediacy of right now, like I put together my top ten list, and then I gave all those films a second watch, oh. and then there was some pretty dramatic movement with some of those choices within that top ten, yeah. just based on a second watch and how things you know resonated or not or whatever. So, so um, you like movies. Okay. Yeah. You get, you get it. Uh, what is, what is your number three? Well, let me just simply say that we just need to jump to your number three because my number three is a movie that will appear on your list. Okay. So let's just not steal the thunder of that discussion. Okay. Let's share it whenever it comes up on your list and we'll just say, yeah, that was my number three. Okay. That was a great choice <laughs> since I know what it is now because there's, I, I can confidently say that my next two choices will absolutely not be, on your list, and if you're like, man, Nick's really grown as 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 a uh, purveyor of film and as a fan, mm-hmm. um, and you know what, I'm all kinds of uh, a film fan, and uh, I, you know, I, I equate it to food. I, you know, sometimes you got to eat lobster and steak, but sometimes you got to go for skittles. Uh, <laughs> so number three is what uh, you is, is uh, a skittle is a skittle it's a skittle, skittle commercial uh, no. Number three is uh, will not be on your list, but I, I'm going to praise it all the same. You can call it an action movie. You can call it a superhero movie, a comedy, a space western. You'd be correct in all three of those descriptions, Jeff. You would not call it any of those things. But I call it Guardians of the Galaxy. It's a movie that, uh, once again, I know is divisive for a lot of people, mainly because of the lowered expectations going in. I think people were just blown away uh, how it actually was pretty good. Um, <laughs> people didn't expect that and you know Marvel has been on a roll lately with the Avengers franchise and usually at this point is where they get a little bit too big for their britches and embarrass themselves with what I'm going to call pulling a Howard the Duck um, which is a deliberate reference to Guardians of the Galaxy but um, and that was what most people's expectations before this movie was released uh, since Guardians of the Galaxy is a decidedly different product off of uh, their you know, Marvel movie assembly line. It's an odd cocktail of humor, nostalgia, sci-fi, and the classic sort of square pegs who band together to work for a common cause. In all respects, this film should be a disaster, and who knows, maybe you say it will be. <laughs> but for me, uh, everything works so wonderfully, and and uh, I and it immediately appealed to the version of myself who loves uh, not to step into blaspheme territory uh indiana jones star wars or even like an oceans 11 i wanted to go to the movies in the summer and see something really fun that worked on all levels for me and this was it uh for chris pratt who's who leads this sort of you know uh sci-fi futuristic gang of uh of miscreants essentially shows us that he can carry a picture in the lead role uh the visuals are stunning the soundtrack in my opinion is excellent and I've definitely gone on more than one jog to it, uh, mostly showcasing music from the late 70s and the 80s. Uh, and it did seemingly, at least seemingly improbable by making me care a little too deeply, perhaps, about a CGI raccoon and a talking tree, voiced by Bradley Cooper and Vin Diesel, respectively. Is, that's a sentence that I never thought I'd say this year. Uh, I can easily say it's the most fun I had in the theater this year. And uh, fun is a, you know, it's not a uh, prerequisite for when I watch movies, but it's definitely a plus and, and so much 
I had so much fun, in fact, that I went back three times in, to see it in the theater and took friends each time. And uh, it did, in fact, have me believing, Jeff, that we are Groot. <laughs> and that's why my number three is Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's it's nowhere near my top 10. I know Or not. even my top 20. Um, I mean, that's it. I mean, it's fine, you know, yeah, yeah. as far as me. Now, I, you know, I have to confess... Um, I am just so in the minority on Marvel in general. I know. Uh, I've never been a big fan of the brand to begin with. I've, I thought not only has it been overrated in terms of audience response to it, but I'm surprised how well-reviewed so many of those films are. I mean, three of the four Marvel films last year all ranked over 90% on Rotten Tomatoes, and each and every one of those rankings just left, my, left me scratching my head. What I'll say at the very least for Guardians of the Galaxy is oftentimes I think Marvel films... <laughs> think they're they're smarter and deeper than they really are and that they're exploring ideas that yeah you're exploring those ideas but in the most conventional ways you're yeah. not you're not telling me anything new that I don't already haven't already thought before and films haven't explored better um so to guardian's credit it's not trying to be more than what it is that's true it, you know it it is yeah, and it's joyfully what it is. Um, unfortunately, you know, you're familiar with those honest trailers online yes. where it, you know, puts clips together and, and kind of takes snarky looks at movies. Mm -hmm. I normally really don't care for those because I think they're really reaching for the snark. And it's just like, oh, come on. You know, you're just it's very mean spirited. The honest trailer for Guardians is like, that's how I feel about Guardians. <laughs> um, because the the essence of it is it's. It's a derivative of their other Marvel stuff that already feels kind of derivative anyway. <laughs> um, so yeah, so it just it didn't it didn't feel fresh. Uh, another thing I don't like about Marvel is it's just you know CGI animation overload. I feel like I'm watching you know a cartoon in some respects, and that's even what the tone of the piece was. It was very cartoony in a way. But again, I appreciated that it wasn't didn't think it was more serious or higher than it, the material was. And, uh, and Chris Pratt specifically, it's just, he's a very refreshing screen presence. It's really exciting to see his film career take yeah. off post parks and recreation. So, uh, you know, uh, so I, in one sense, I get how people are fascinated with it. I just, I just don't share the fascination. Well, this podcast is over. I only came here. <laughs> oh, here comes the symbol. I only came yeah. here for confirmation bias. Um, well, next year, uh, we're just going to have to do this podcast with a threesome and have to add Corey Edwards here because I need somebody oh, to be on geez. my side. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. this is, a, you know, I, I think all your, uh, I think it's just at this point, it just comes down to a matter of taste. And a matter Absolutely. Of like, and I agree with so much of what you said, but I'm still like, yeah, but I still loved it. Mm -hmm. I had so much fun. And every time I watched it, I've had I had so much fun, and so you know what's interesting about too is that uh, people that I talked to after the first time they saw it, of course I didn't feel this way, but a lot of response I heard was I really enjoyed it, but man that was kind of weird, <laughs> you know, like for them it was one of the weird I mean one of the weirder movies they had seen. Now you take that in context, but um, it, it it did have its own offbeat personality. I think mm -hmm. that largely comes from not only the source material. But director James Gunn, yes, which I wouldn't necessarily recommend you check out his earlier independent films. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah, they're kind of trauma. Is it trauma or whatever that uh, brand is? Yeah. Uh, kind of almost perverse. Yeah. I don't um, like and this is basically a sanitized version of his sensibility. It is. Uh, so, and I think for most people, they would only want to take the sanitized version of his sensibility. Yeah. But it worked. It was a good marriage of sensibility to material for sure. It's true. 
And uh, wait, so we skipped your number three, so we are going yeah. straight to your number two. Uh, number two, uh, which is Birdman, uh, yes. which we talked about before. And for me, it's so rare to see a film that is trippy, really kind of gonzo in its uh, outlandish spirit, even a psychedelic piece of filmmaking, yet is also defined by such artistic precision. Uh, and really, there's a control to all of this outrageousness that is kind of mind-boggling to me. Uh, and those kinds of films are extremely rare, but Birdman is one of those rarities. It's pretty staggering, actually, to contemplate that this daring achievement uh, with its given lofty ambitions, and ambitions that are so big and out there that it would suggest that the final movie would kind of be all over the place, mm -hmm. you know? And yet it's not all over the place. I mean, it's perfectly executed beginning to end within and of itself. From style to story to themes and character exploration, director and co-writer Alejandro Gonzalez Inuritu is basically biting off more than he should be able to chew. <laughs> and yet he chews all of it. I mean, he devours it yeah. brilliantly. It's a huge leap forward for him as a filmmaker known previously for really heavy, oppressive movies, not to mention ones that plots have been very convoluted, multi-narrative stories that kind of messed with linear order. I'm talking about films like Babel, uh, mm. 21 Grams. Uh, 21 Grams, I like Babel, was a pretentious piece of bleep um, <laughs> uh, that even kind of conflicted with continuity. But here, Inuritu imbues a comic sensibility into his work for the first time, while also seriously exploring the deteriorating psychosis, the ego of a former A-list movie star named Riggin Thompson, played by Michael Keaton, frontrunner for the Best Actor Oscar. Uh, this character, Riggin, who, after a Hollywood career, you know, starring in multiple superhero sequels, again, as we talked about before, Birdman instead of Batman in this case. Yeah. Riggin reaches for artistic credibility by mounting this theatrical production on Broadway. Uh, he's, you know, written it, directed it, he's feeling, he's starring in it. And this whole process is fueled by creative tensions between the cast members, as well as tensions between Riggin and his own daughter, played by the always mesmerizing powerhouse that is Emma Stone. Preach. And, and really, through Riggin's mentally unstable journey, which is what this movie is, it's just the deterioration of his psyche, it suggests that we all have our own inner bird man that we have to contend with, which is that ego that appears to be using pride to build ourselves up against the world, but what it's really actually doing is it's tearing us down. Mm. And that's what this film is about, is about how ego deceives with pride and uses that to then, again, like I said, tear us down. The movie is also an observant satire about fame in our social media age. Uh, it's an actor's showcase, as you you know, you went through that whole cast, an impressive Absolutely. list. Uh, for me, Edward Norton in particular is in top form, along with Emma Stone and along with Keaton. Mm -hmm. But really, everyone here is working at career peak levels. Uh, the film's ambition is perhaps most apparent in how you mentioned it's crafted to appear as if the entire movie is done in one long single take, seemingly devoid of any cuts and edits, although that's obviously didn't actually how it happened. Mm -hmm. But what's particularly interesting about that is it looks like one take, and yet it's intentionally, it doesn't unfold in real time. It's jumping in time even as the shot continues, which is in and of itself very interesting. Basically, in the end, Birdman is able to chew everything it bites off very miraculously. And most telling is that it's an indictment of being pretentious 
from a director who's arguably been the most pretentious <laughs> filmmaker of this century. And so for me, that there was there ended up being a vulnerability to that. Me knowing his previous films and knowing how I perceive them and how many others perceive them. And now here he's saying, well, let me examine my own ego through this character. Mm. Let me examine artistic pretension and how ridiculous that is. And to your also point, how it causes you to... It, when you get so obsessed with that pretense, you're destroying the most important relationships in your lives. Right. And you're ruining them. And so there's 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 a confessional almost to this uh, by Inuritu as a writer-director. So I think it's the most inspired piece of cinematic creativity this year and along with Whiplash, the most exhilarating experience. And that's why I have it at my number two. My, my, my number two... Um... I believe in wholeheartedly, and uh, and I won't be told otherwise. And I have been told otherwise, but I won't believe it. It's it's a movie I'm putting in the category. Well, Cameron Crowe didn't make a movie this year, <laughs> so I have to love a movie that most people hate. So my number two is a movie called Wish I Was Here, uh, directed written by Zach Braff. Uh, his ten year follow up to Garden State, which is also sort of falls into a lot of the same uh, pitfalls that this movie does as far as people love hating it. Uh, it's the story of Aiden Bloom, a struggling actor, father, and husband who is at 35 still trying to find his identity, his purpose for his life. He winds up trying to homeschool his two children when his father uh, can no longer afford to pay for the private education. Uh, and through teaching them about <clears throat> life his way, Aiden gradually discovers some of the parts of himself that he couldn't find all well and good uh, as far as a, a, you know a movie plot goes. Uh, several scenes moved me very deeply. Uh, the the sporting cast, essentially, I sort of went in. Uh, well, Kate Hudson specifically hasn't impressed me uh, in a long time uh, in, her, in her acting choices. Blew me away. Uh, her and Mandy Patinkin, who plays uh, Zach Braff's character's father, have an, an incredibly powerful scene in a hospital that uh, that. Every time I've seen this movie, which is three times now, blew me away. Patinkin, I'm such a that, huge fan of. That man uh, has, no. has been knocking it out of the park. And uh, I couldn't be more happy with his sort of resurgence in film and television in the last mm -hmm. few years. Uh, there's one stunning image as, uh, uh, of Aiden and his two children, each perched on a separate rock out in the desert, uh, talking about things like what the word epiphany means. Uh, there is an openness between the characters and, and accessibility that's so refreshing to me. And I found myself on the verge of tears throughout this entire movie. Um, uh, there's there's a scene where the father character Aiden, uh, his kids are helping him repair a fence. It seems like as he's teaching them sort of how to homeschool, it's sort of a misplaced Mr. Miyagi sense where it, everything is failing every time he tries to teach him something. It's sort of everybody is expecting him to fail uh, at it, and it just he's kind of finds in his own journey with dealing with his own mortality and and, uh, and the eventual loss of his ailing father that he's finding what actually matters in life and he's uh, appropriating that and giving it to his kids instead. And um, uh, I might pull a Jeff Houston here and, and cry. Uh, <laughs> there's there, But like I said, there's a scene where his kids are helping him repair a fence and he, but to, which needs to be done, which is dilapidating greatly. And he, he uh, but to in, inject some schooling into it, he, he uh, gets his daughter to read this T.S. Eliot poem uh, on the diving board of the pool uh, out loud to them while they repair this fence. And uh, the lines in the T.S. Eliot poem are, quote, and indeed there will be time to wonder, do I dare and do I dare? Um, 
We're all on a quest. We all need to ask, do I dare, in order to make meaningful changes. We are held back from connecting to one another due uh, to what we think life should be like, or disappointments in ourselves and in each other, or the regular stress of everyday life, uh, which I resonate with strongly. Wish I was here uh, in its many flaws, which are which are there. I'm not, I'm not denying that. It shows what happens when people are forced to slow down, assess their lives, and ask the big questions, face the big moments. Yes, death will happen, disappointment is imminent, uh, but we are stronger than we realize. And uh, a lot of that strength comes from the moments that we share with the ones we love. And uh, the takeaway for me is yes, life is chaos and people die. And uh, we need to make amends and we need to grow up and take responsibility for ours. Uh, it was extremely powerful. There's a lot of, uh, I feel like he does take a page from Camera Crow where there's a lot of moments that are, are underlying with great, the soundtrack is outstanding. Um, maybe a little bit too much music at some points, which I definitely, I actually don't have a problem with, but I definitely see, I'm like, yeah, I see where people are coming from mm -hmm. when they say that. But uh, They feel like they're being manipulated after yeah, a point. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. and, and I definitely, you know what? I, I've said this many times, especially for my love for the sentimentality of films like Zach Raff clearly makes and Cameron Crowe clearly makes these guys who are not afraid to slap their heart right on their sleeve and say like, yeah, I want to, Sometimes I want to be manipulated and manu I want that. I want my heart sort of strings tugged on a little bit um, if it leads me to a greater truth. And to me, I, re I resonated most strongly from uh, the level of this character, Aiden Bloom, this who's struggling so hard to be an artist and nobody believes in him, sometimes not even himself. Uh, I, I resonate with that, with the father part, with the with the husband, with every every. Thing. he's just barely holding it all together and and for me it just was the film that i resonated with the most this year which is which i was here which i um i can't offer an opinion on because i'm not seen it okay so uh, uh it doesn't certainly just knowing your sensibility doesn't surprise me yeah, that no, this would be on your surprised. list maybe a little surprised by how high it is yeah um but um you know and i this is coming from a person who uh you know garden state has its haters I'm not one of them. I would passionately defend it in the face of the hatred. Mm. Um, and and so I was like very expectant for years about well, when's he going to direct another movie. And I was interested certainly in this film, but uh, there was something about the trailers that felt just a little desperate to me of it just so desperate to get me to have all the feels, right. you know, that um, it didn't make me passionately seek it out. And um, I'm still interested in seeing it at some point, and I certainly don't want to. You know, you should never judge a movie based on a trailer. Uh, True. But um, uh, and even though I really wouldn't expect it to land on my top ten, it still could be one of those things where it could be that kind of movie that I could, you know, critically speaking, go, okay, the manipulations here are pretty obvious. But like the speech that I talked about in Interstellar, if I connect with it. And I connect with what it's saying, and even to a degree how it's saying it. Um, you know, uh, I'm willing to defend anything against haters when it yeah. works for me on that level. So, and, I, and I'm, I've definitely been a defender of the premise that that a film is imperfect if it doesn't line up to all sort of film school standards. And I have friends in film school who who make fun of me mercilessly because of my love for the sentimental. But like sometimes you just need. You just need a movie that makes you feel certain things when you're mm -hmm. in a certain moments in your life. And this was this was that for me this year. And I, I was surprised on how high it landed. But when I was honest with myself, I was like, this is the one that I 
it just it made me feel like I I made this movie. It's mm-hmm. like it's like he got into my brain in so many ways and was like, okay, we're gonna write with and this your heart. Oh, <laughs> Zach Braff, get out of my heart. All right, here we go. Well, before we talk about our number ones, <laughs> okay, here we don't go. Well, no, it's just I think it's interesting to point out um, what's not our number ones, and therefore oh. not on either of our lists. Yeah. Uh, I think it's safe to assume that Boyhood is not your number one. No, it's not. And it's not my number one, uh, interestingly enough. I love it. Um, and let's just talk about that for a moment because okay. it is the most critically acclaimed movie of the year. It is. It's uh, at the top of most critics' lists. And it's not on my top ten list because it's not because I think it's overrated. Um, Richard Linklater, the writer-director, will most assuredly win the directing Oscar and be very deserving for it. What Absolutely. he's achieved sure. of filming a story over a 12-year period is a phenomenal achievement of in and of itself. The fact that A, he got it done, B, that it came together so miraculously as a not only a cohesive story, but a cohesive tone. Um, and so just the achievement uh, is worthy of praise. But for me, it was an element of you take the ambition and the and the ability to achieve that ambition aside and it was good you know it it didn't wow me and it wasn't like this life-altering experience and it wasn't this master like it, it just putting that aside it's just like yeah that's a good coming of age story yeah um and more specifically uh, i guess the, the, the thing that kept me from connecting with it the way it did for a lot of critics certainly is this boy became less charismatic as he aged. Thank you. And, I, I completely agree. And what shocks me is most people say just the opposite. Oh, man, Linklater got so lucky that this guy would just remain charismatic through all this. Like, the, the kid was interesting when he was younger, mm. but he just became this dull, static presence on screen as he aged. And I just, I did not care for his arc. Mm-hmm. Um, I really was intrigued by what Linklater was doing that throughout the film, instead of giving us conventional coming-of-age moments at each stage of life. He was giving us the moments that were specific to this kid, mm. uh, yet still had a universality to them, but uh, uh, but they were specific and interesting. And um, so I just like that he, he, he you know, kind of subverted our expectations in that sense. And then for me, actually, the film, uh, the arcs that resonated for me, it wasn't the boyhood arc. It was the fatherhood arc and the motherhood arc. Me too. I mean, with Ethan Hawke and Patricia Arquette and those characters – to the extent that the film did resonate and move me emotionally, it was what was going on with them and not with that boy. Yeah. So, so yeah. So to me, it's an honorable mention. It's in my 11 through 20. Um, and again, I think it's it's worthy of the praise it's getting. It just didn't like come together for a couple specific reasons, like it seemed to for most people. I completely agree. I'm sh- actually shocked by that. I I I came here with my defense ready, but you basically <laughs> laid it all out. I mean, yeah, it's a movie that I liked. It's yeah. fine. I think, yeah, it sh- he should win Best Director. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a singular <sighs> achievement in film history. Yes, and and but my biggest takeaway was that I don't like any of these characters except for honestly, for me, Ethan Hawke was the only standout. I didn't really care for Patricia Arquette. Really? Was oh very, man, I, I, my heart went out to her. Actually, I, I might need to see it again, but I, I think all the praise she's getting is unwarranted. I don't get it. I just don't get. Mm-hmm. I didn't find her very likable or her character very real at all but once again i, I could be wrong i need to go back again but ethan hawk i feel like i was watching ethan hawk as a guy and ethan mm-hmm. hawk plays some really creepy odd characters and mm-hmm. this was him playing i felt like he was playing like a reproachable dude you know if i was making a top five 
characters I wanted to hang out with this year in film, mm-hmm. he would be number one. I, I think mm-hmm. it's great. There's one scene in particular where they're stopped in a car and he's, he gets them every other weekend and he, he, they're, they're, he's asking them what's going on in their lives and they're sort of, you know, giving him the like, I oh, don't know, not much, right. whatever. And he pulls up and he's like, no, listen, this is the conversation. That, it's so good. And he's like, this is how I want all this to lay out. And they even kind of put him in his place, but it's so like, you know, or even making his kid like a Beatles mixtape or whatever. I was like, this is, this feels like I'm watching Ethan Hawke, who I've loved for years, mm-hmm. you know, come, come around. But like, yeah, the kid himself is just so bland. And I, in a movie called Boyhood, you want to, the boy to be absolutely a guy that you root for. And you just kind of, he, yeah, he just not even one note. He's just flat to me. Absolutely. And, a flat presence on yeah, the screen. Which yeah. I mean, but I mean, I should, and all that said, I think everybody should see this movie just for the cinematic achievement alone. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have other uh, uh, well, honorable mentions that you wanted to throw in there? Or do you well, want to do that we'll save that for the segment after okay. this. Uh, I will go ahead and move on to my actual number one yeah, of the year. It. Um, it's a film that most people aren't familiar with other than critics, unfortunately. It's a film called The Immigrant. Mm. And it debut- here's, let me just preface by saying it, how shocking it is to me that this is largely unknown to people. It debuted, I believe it was at the 2013 Cannes Film Festival to huge critical acclaim. It might have even some, won some awards at the Cannes Film Festival because it basically looked like uh, the great American epic from the 1970s, and very legitimately so. Very it, So well-crafted. It felt like, you know, particularly in a visual aesthetic sense, like the Godfather films. Mm. It's not a mafia story, but aesthetically it has very similar sensibilities, yet still has its own voice and its own style. Um and so it was just, it looked like this great achievement of American filmmaking and a, a legitimate throwback to the 1970s. The Weinstein Company picked it up, which the Weinstein Company, I mean, they're the ones that win the most Oscars. Yeah. They put on the big, most aggressive, lavish campaigns. It just seemed like, okay, come 2014 when they actually release this, it's just, it's going to follow that, that, that narrative template. And then for some unknown reason, they just dump it into theaters in late spring, early summer of 2014 to little fanfare, came and went. Um, and that was it. And it just boggles my mind because this is, like I said, this throwback to 1970s cinema, and it deserves the comparison. It, it's, it's a powerful piece and a, a spectacular piece of filmmaking. Uh, this film, which stars Marion Cotillard and Joaquin Phoenix, is about a Czech immigrant in the 1920s, played by Cotillard, and the lengths she will go to and must go to in order to save her sister from being deported back to Czechoslovakia. And on a recent second viewing of this, which it's currently on Netflix streaming, so you can see it now, um, it was as good as I had remembered, but I found myself starting to shift the film down my top 10 list in favor of other films that I found to be more inventive, more daring. But then... As the last 30 minutes began to unfold, that all changed, and this just shot right back up to number one again for me. I remembered what it was that had made such an impact on me eight months earlier when I saw it for the first time, as this harrowing and volatile conclusion so completely gripped and moved me. It's not just the most deeply human film of the year, but also possibly the most Christian, and for me as a Christian, that, you know, that resonates, because it's asking some difficult Christian questions, uh, such as, is sin sin when it's your only mode of survival? Or is sin sin when it's your only means of saving not only yourself, but a loved one to save someone else? In the context of survival, whether it's yours or somebody else's, could you equate sexual sin as being necessary in the way that 
the sin of killing is necessary in a context of survival, war or otherwise. Uh, for one character, uh, that being Cotillard's, who has committed sin, first by force, but then by choice, it's a personal journey of seeing if she can forgive or even hope to express some sort of love toward the person that has forced this sin upon her. And for the man, played by Phoenix, it's an arc of what redemption looks like for someone who's so lost in his own spiritual corruption. This is a corrupt man. That he can't conceive redemption for himself, even when he's striving to create some form of sacrificial penance to make things right. And even as he tries to make things right, he feels he's unworthy of forgiveness, that he's beyond redemption. It's, you know, it, that the tragedy of that very, very much moved me. Occasionally, films come along that depict people who are so lost, so abused or corrupted by their own sin. Uh, and yet these movies still find ways to see these kinds of people, I think, as God sees them through the literally as if God's looking down from heaven and seeing them in a way that you or I cannot see them. Uh, in ways that aren't sentimental, ways that aren't, you know, inauthentic Hallmark cliches, but in, in true empathy that most of us, like I said, aren't capable of, these films fully know their characters as sinners, even as perverse people, yet are still able to see them with empathy. I'm talking about films like Dead Man Walking, mm. uh, Monster's Ball, which Halle Berry won an Oscar for, uh, a little more recently Precious, mm. uh, which had some Oscar attention. And there was also a film called The Woodsman, in which Kevin Bacon played a pedophile. And these films see these people who've, who've committed, by all accounts, some heinous acts, and yet still sees them with a godlike empathy. Mm. For me, The Immigrant is one of those films, too. It looks at people so lost in their own sin, their own corruption and guilt, yet sees them with a holy empathy, one that doesn't look to condemn, but rather to absolve and to save and to rescue. That, coupled with how beautiful and gorgeous it is in cinematic terms. Again, the best quick reference I can just give is it's like The Godfather. Uh, the cinematographer, incidentally, is Darius Kanji. Uh, anybody who's familiar with that name would then say, oh my gosh, i got to see that movie right now. Um, this really feels like an American epic from the 1970s, almost as if it was pulled from the archives. It's shot on film, so it has that film texture. Wow. So it, just, it really feels like a lost film from the 70s that we finally discovered. And all of that makes The Immigrant my choice for the best film of 2014. Wow. I've been aware of it. I remember seeing the trailer, but like you said, it just completely got lost. Mm -hmm. And then only until I started revisiting other top 10 lists for this year, I was just like, oh, yeah, that movie, did that come out? It was the same thing with The Homesman. I was like, that came out? (laughs) Yeah. Totally missed it. Yeah, Immigrant in particular came and went. Um, But I got to give, you know, props to the writer, director, James Gray, who's mostly been working in the independent realm with, and predominantly more, uh, modern films, uh, films called The Yards and We Own the Night, which both co-starred Joaquin Phoenix. Joaquin Phoenix, yeah. Uh, as well, and those co-starred um, Mark Wahlberg, who's not in this film. Uh, he also made another film with Phoenix called Two Lovers with... Yeah, uh, with a Very unique, disturbing film, but man, that gripped me. Mm. Um, and so, so this was exciting to see him kind of ex- expand his artistic palette while still making a very riveting, you know, compelling character study. And then I also got to throw out uh, uh, Jeremy Renner has a supporting uh, performance in this that uh, he's an actor who's very hit and miss for me. And this is definitely one of his better performances. I, I often find that he's a little too earnest and doesn't have a charm or charisma to him. And he's doesn't. got a charm here that's very effective to the character in the arc of the story. Does so. he have the same hair from American Hustle? 
Uh, pretty much. Okay. Well, no, it's not quite that big. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah it's, it's more tamed in modern, or, or at least of, of that time period. Excuse convenient. me. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so the immigrant um, again, rated R. There's some content in there that you know might uh, fluster more conservative sensibilities, but uh, but yeah, it 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 just really, particularly in the end, that last half hour, it just it hit me. It moved me more than anything else. And the good news is it's on Netflix. And it's on Netflix Instant. streaming. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So your number one. Uh, I, this is awkward. It is left behind. Uh, anyway, no. Uh, and Nicholas Cage is here to talk about it. Come on out. Um, no, my number one is you know it's uh, it's no shock to anyone who knows me uh, for me to say that Wes Anderson is a favorite filmmaker of mine. Um, and anyone who had a conversation with me about movies this year uh, wouldn't be surprised to hear my number one film of the year is his offering in 2014, which is The Grand Budapest Hotel. Uh, Grand Budapest Hotel recounts the adventures of Gustav H., a uh, legendary concierge at a famous European hotel between wars uh, in a, I, I should say, a, between the two a world fictional, wars. Yeah, yeah, between the world fictional world country, wars. fictional yeah, place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and also about his counterpart, Zero Mustafa, a lobby boy uh, who becomes his most trusted friend. The story involves, uh, you know, the theft and recovery of a priceless Renaissance painting and the battle for an enormous uh, family fortune. Uh, all against the backdrop of a suddenly and dramatically changing continent. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar with Wes's style or previous films, might find the meticulously composed and designed shots, the precise and very constricted uh, camera movements, the striking visuals and cinematography, and the elaborate tale within a tale within a tale framework a bit jarring at first. Uh, but if you know him, and for me, I know him very well, I always just strap in and enjoy the ride. Uh, I mean, that, that structure that you mentioned, it's almost, I forget what the name of it is, but like those Russian dolls that unpack themselves. Yes, yes. And, and the film structurally is basically doing that, uh, <laughs> disassembling itself, reassembling itself. I know. Yeah. It's amazing. I love pointing out to people. I was like, that's a story, but that's it within this greater story. No one realizes it. And sometimes you forget when you're watching it until the very end uh, when the book is closed. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's a brilliant mix of slapstick humor very like reminiscent of a buster keaton or or charlie chaplin at times it's uh packed with blink and you'll miss it dialogue uh film score by uh alexander duplot how do you say Desplat. Desplat. Mm-hmm. yeah uh and a feast for the eyes set design and costumes you almost don't uh need the brilliant backdrop of the intricate strip or spot-on Pittsburgh performances from the likes of ray fines who one of the best performances of the year in my opinion uh, Edward Norton, Jeff Goldblum, Adrian Brody, to name a few. Uh, as interesting and dynamic as so many films in tw- 2014 where Grand Budapest Hotel was a film of the likes I'd never seen before, and I doubt we'll ever see uh, you know, anytime soon. And uh, I, there's even little moments where the, in repeat watchings that I, I have to laugh at, you know, the fact that this is sort of a, a World War, in between World War One and Two, uh, Europe, essentially, you know, essentially a, a uh, a, a slighted version of that, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and then there's Harvey, Chris Anderson's version of that. Yes, yeah. and and then there's Harvey Keitel, who's like this Brooklyn dude, and then there's yeah. like <laughs> Edward Norton has no, uh, no act, he's a Russian, I think, or something like that. Something but like but that. there's no accent. And then at yeah. the end, there's there's Owen Wilson, who's just Owen Wilson. You know, it's just I love that they they don't care. <laughs> Jason Schwartzman's in there. Yes, yeah, yeah. they and just then, go for it, and, yeah. and 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 for whatever reason, you buy into it, and and. Uh, I think it's because it has so much going forward. It is, like we were saying with Gone Girl, it is this uh, fantastic grandfather clock that you you take the top off and you look at all the moving pieces and you wonder how all of these could come together to make something so beautiful. And and the people who, who watch this movie and dismiss it, which there's been a few that I've talked to, I don't understand it. I think it's just, 
I know it's it's a I, you know art is is a preferential form and I understand that but th this just to me sets all the pleasure senses of my brain off as, mm -hmm. as a film lover and uh, I just it, it was a definite highlight of, of uh, not just the film season but the year for me mm -hmm. well it's, and it's the number three that I avoided right uh, and you know a couple things just off the top of my head uh, mentioned Ray Fiennes uh, between him and David Oyelowo. Yeah, that's those are such glaring omissions. Uh, they neither of them were nominated for Oscars, and to me, those two and Michael Keaton should be the three-way competition yeah, for I Best agree. Actor. Uh, in this case, you know, Ray, it's, it's Ray Fiennes as we've rarely, if ever, seen him before. With like you're saying, this um, classic. Uh, uh, comedic sensibility from that era of the 30s of 30s cinema and really bringing that in a very uh, uh, just seamless uh, natural way but yet there's a precision to what you know the comedy that he's doing there um, and then you know for me Wes Anderson's career has just been hitting on all creative cylinders for three films now I think the first Agreed. part of his career you know, varying degrees of success, although I'm, like yourself, a Wes Anderson apologist. Uh, even his quote-unquote worst still works for me on a lot of levels. Right. But there's varying degrees. But here, you've got Fantastic Mr. Fox, then Moonrise Kingdom, and now the Grand Budapest Hotel. And it's, and all three are Anderson at peak form. I agree. And and what's interesting to me, too, is uh, up, up until those three films, most of his movies, in some form or fashion, have been about some sort of father-son dynamic or brother dynamic that incorporates the elements of parenthood and whatever. And in these three previous films, that's such a, uh, I mean, you might see that in the lobby boy relationship with Gustav H here, yeah. played by Rafe, but he's really kind of put those dynamics aside and he's just exploring original stories. And I, that must be some sort of creative juice that has really mm -hmm. just taken him to another level. Um, and, and as you say, I mean, visually, the, the superior artistic output that Anderson's at right now, Grand Budapest specifically, is sort of this, you, you want to talk in terms of candy. Uh, it's delicious, it's savory, it's it's vibrant. and Almost like a Mendel's uh, snack cake. Yes, exactly, exactly. Itself. Um, that Yeah, you cut it open and there's more in it. Yep. And, yeah, uh -huh. um, and yet there's this tender emotional core. It's a period caper that you talked about. It's this farce. That had, where the wit is quick yet also subtle. Uh, it boasts dazzling invention, both in terms of the images as well as the story itself. Uh, your eyes really can't help but pop at all this pastel candy set piece beauty that's constructed. And you know the onslaught of imager, imagery is so intense and breathtaking that it really is the point of distraction. The first time I saw it, I literally had to make an intentional decision in my brain a couple minutes in going, I don't know what's happening here because I'm just lost at looking at it. I know. I had to like I had to concentrate on the story, not that it's uh, too complicated to follow, but the visual is just so mesmerizing and overwhelming to me in the best kind of way. Uh, like I said, it takes place in the fictional 1930s Eastern Euro European nation, and it's one that's trying to, particularly in the character of Gustav, hold on to the traditions of old aristocracies of class structures, while the world itself is evolving past those structures. And more specifically, as the world finds itself, and Europe specifically, influx with the continent's growing fascist movements and the conflict with that. So it's about holding on to or trying to hold on to the past, even as time is passing you by, uh, specifically in the character of Gustav, played by Ray Fiennes. Um, 
Josh Larson, who's the co-host of the Film Spotting Film Review Podcast, mm-hmm. uh, described Grand Budapest as being nostalgic about nostalgia. <laughs> and I think that's just such a beautifully that concise is. way to describe the emotional tone of this piece. Uh, in fact, one character says of Gustav, the world he wanted to live in ended long before he even entered it. Mm-hmm. And yet the film also remains witty and light and fun all along the way as it's exploring these very you know nostalgic uh melancholy you know tonal type of things Uh, there's a great romance too between zero and agatha a young chef's assistant played by saoirse Saoirse ronan Ronan, and you know some of the film's most emotional moments are set in the 1960s between characters played by jude law and f murray abraham as they reflect on the events of the 30s so now as a west uh, as a west anderson sort of super fan um it just hit all the right buttons for me like it did for you and it serves as a great defense for why he's one of our greatest living auteurs, long overdue for the Oscar nomination recognition that he's finally getting for this. Yeah. He's maybe had a couple screenplays nominated in the past, yes, but that's yes. really about it. And so, and even among auteurs, I don't think there's a more singular and unique aesthetic style than Anderson's. I mean, there literally is nobody else like him right now, mm-hmm. and I don't think there really ever has been. And so, I mean, that's why, you know, I talked about how shuffling choices around on my list. This was at number one for a while. Um, And maybe the the only reason I can say it moved down to number three is it was just more of a confirmation of him as an artist as opposed to a revelation. Yeah. Whereas Birdman was this revelation for me about Inuritu. And uh, even James Gray, just this revelation that he went beyond these kind of modern crime or love stories and went back into the past and elevated his whole craft. So there was that element that I think came into play when I was ranking. But, um, you know, for me, it's like a three-way tie. I mean, if I was to put all that thinking aside and just look at it within the vacuum of the movie itself, it's hard to argue saying Grand Budapest is the best film of the year. Yeah, so we're... It does so much for me. And honestly, I mean, my favorite movie, one of my favorite movies of all time is Rushmore. And I think Mm. it's pitch perfect for me on so many levels. I think this is the closest he's gotten to... It's in so many ways, and I've watched it a few times now, a a perfect film for what he was trying to do. Absolutely. uh, Which makes me think... He's at the strength of his powers. I know he is. (laughs) And I'm... Yeah, I, I could not be more... Stoked that that he is getting all the recognition he's giving, especially for a movie that was released in March. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this is sort of uh, not unheard of, but it's definitely you know rare for uh, you know a film. And I wonder if if it had been released in like October or November, if it would have had even more, it would have been a front runner because right. it definitely is. You know, the mere fact that it was released at the time of year when most films are long forgotten and never even come close to any sort of serious Oscar campaign or recognition, the fact that it's tied for the most nominations this year with yeah. nine. That really speaks to how effective and uh, it just it, it, it's a memorable experience and voters remembered it. And I'm glad that it's getting recognized instead of like, oh, it got snubbed, but the next time we'll reward, which, you know, some actors or films get nominated mm-hmm. because the last one should have been in hindsight. Right. But this is like, I was like, oh, they got it right. Yep. Yep. Definitely. Um, well, those are our number one picks. I guess maybe on the other side of this break, we can briefly go through our top 10 again just to recap them. Yeah. But uh, taking us to the break is a selection from the score for the film that uh, a film that appeared on both of our lists, Birdman. Uh, the composer is Antonio Sanchez. This particular track is called The Anxious Battle for Sanity. Which, in and of itself, might be just the perfect <laughs> phrase to encapsulate the whole movie. This ancient, ba- anxious battle for sanity. Exactly, and so, um, uh, and it has 
it's sort of this off-kilter jazz style that's uh, very evocative of the psychological deterioration of the lead character. Yeah. And so that's why I've got it here as another one of the score highlights of the year. There's some other instrumentation kind of atmospheric underneath it, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's just this kind of, it seems like a chaotic thing. Well, that even reminds me of just in the film, how they actually had showed the drummer at times. I love that. You I know, that. And it's just, there's so much inspiration in that movie. It's just. All right, Jeff, did you want to go through, uh, go through your top 10 really quick? Yeah. Okay. So at number 10, I had Into the Woods. At number nine, The One I Love. Eight is Calvary. Seven, I had Gone Girl. Six was Whiplash. Then in the top five, number five was Selma. Number four, Tommy Lee Jones Western, The Homesman. Number three, The Grand Budapest Hotel. Number two, Birdman. And number one, The Immigrant. My number 10 uh, was The One I Love. Uh, Number nine, Whiplash. Number eight was The Skeleton Twins. Number seven, Birdman. Number six, Wild. Number five, David Fincher's Gone Girl. Uh, Number four, Tyler Perry's Interstellar. No, oh wait, uh, that was somebody else. Uh, number three, Guardians of the Galaxy. Number two, Wish I Was Here. And number one was the Grand Budapest Hotel. Now, that, certainly, as I said earlier, there are a lot of honorable mentions. You know, clearly, mm-hmm. it's so easy to make a, a top 20, if not a top right. 25. Do uh, you want to run through some of those really quick and highlight some others that you think that people should check out? Yeah, first of all, I'd like to say I didn't have the opportunity to see Mr. Turner. Did you see that? I didn't see it. It hasn't come to Tulsa yet. Uh, that's a, you know, a lot of praise, a Michael Lee film about a famous uh, painter, kind of troubled painter, I think. Didn't get to see that. There's another film called Cake that Jennifer Aniston yeah, started in. That has not played here yet. And didn't, I didn't have a screener for it. And I'm just, I'm interested in her dramatic turns. Me too. Um, so I, those were two that I didn't get to see, unfortunately. Um, in terms of honorable mentions, I'll also just say that, you know, along with Whiplash and Listen Up, Philip and Birdman, uh, this was really an interesting year for jazz-styled film scores. And the mm-hmm. one that I like to throw in there is there was a film called Le Weekend, which uh, is actually, it's about a uh, elderly British couple um, that... Uh, is vacationing in Paris for a weekend and it's kind of at a challenging point in their marriage. Anyway, it has this really classy jazz score Mm. to it. It's sort of a rom-com vibe, but with a melancholy kind of texture to the whole thing. And so the weekend, check that out on Spotify. Um, In terms of other films, um, I'll just go alphabetically. American Sniper. For me, this was, uh, um, I understand the controversy. I won't get into the controversies of it, but I, I will just say in terms of cinematic terms, Uh, In one sense, this is a war film giving us very familiar scenes, but what makes this unique is we're seeing it through the specific lens of this sniper, and that makes these familiar war scenes kind of come alive, and I see them in a fresh new way for the first time, so so that kind of packed a punch for me. Boyhood, as we talked about. Edge of Tomorrow, mm. to me, that's the smartest and arguably best summer blockbuster since Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. With the worst name. name uh, wor- worst, name, yeah. Name it something else. And worst trailer. Um, yeah, because right. the trailer just looked like this generic sci-fi thing, like Oblivion was, yeah. Cruz's previous film. But actually what it was, 
was as entertaining as James Cameron's movies from the 90s. So entertaining, so smart, so well scripted. It's like unequivocally, Edge of Tomorrow. Watch it, see it. Yeah. Um, a French, uh, uh, or sorry, a Swedish film called Force Majeure. I think I may have referenced this before. Um, very intense. It's almost like taking the one I love to a whole disturbing level um, because it's about this family that's on vacation at a ski resort and something happens that causes distrust to arise within the marriage relationship. And what's particularly, it's, it's a pretty heavy film, but what's interesting about the dynamic is in most films like this, you would kind of see both sides of the equation and there's kind of, there's both right and there's ambiguity there. The director makes a conscious choice to show us what between this husband and wife, one is clearly wrong about what happened. One is clearly right. Wow. And we know that. And the person in the relationship who's wrong doesn't cop to it, is coming up with excuses. And, and so it's creating, it's causing the marriage to quickly deteriorate because the person who's in the wrong is not copping to it. So it's really fascinating. It was two great central performances. Um, another film that had the possibility of popping up but didn't was Foxcatcher. Uh, I didn't quite buy what Steve Carell was doing. Um, I think it's a little mannered, uh, a little obvious in terms of the sociopathic John DuPont that he's portraying despite his Oscar nomination. I mean, it's good, but it's not spectacular. It's mm. a little obvious, I think. Um, and I also thought that the film's wannabe indictment of American exceptionalism was a really big reach. Uh, that said, there's no de- deny. Did you see it? No. There's absolutely no denying the power of this movie's very unsettling tone. It gets under your skin in a creepy way, and it's really that way from beginning to end, start to finish. The what fact is, that what is it with you and creepy? I know. I was just <laughs> well because you can't you can't. It sticks. With you me. can't deny it. I yeah, mean, it's, it's yeah. happening to you. Yeah. And credit to director Bennett Miller for being able to achieve that from start to finish. And really, Channing Tatum, he's the revelation here, not Steve Carell. Really? Channing Tatum is very hit and miss for me. He's often a very bland screen presence to me. And this is easily his best performance and shows what he's fully capable of as an actor. And then, of course, you've got Mark Ruffalo, who gives a spectacular performance, Oscar-nominated, and just, again, proving why he's one of our best living actors. No joke. Um, Currently on Netflix streaming is a foreign film called Ida. It's spelled I-D-A. This is a foreign film about a young, soon-to-be Polish nun in the 1960s who's on the verge of taking her vows when she discovers a dark family secret dating back to Nazi occupation that she kind of needs to work through and work out before taking those vows. It's a foreign language film. Uh, it's very slowly paced. I'm giving all the caveats mm. here. Wait a minute, Jeff. I got to read when I watch a movie? Yeah, you got to read, and it's slow moving. Oh. But it has a brief runtime of 80 minutes. Oh, there we go. So it's not a huge time commitment. It's on Netflix streaming. And it's worth it's well worth giving the chance, especially since it's Oscar-nominated cinema, black and white cinematography is gorgeous. Mm. It, if you love photography... You, that is enough of a reason you should watch this film. It's the the images are simple yet stunning. Uh, we talked about life itself, the Roger Ebert documentary. Um, another great highlight was a film called Nightcrawler. Mm. If you saw that, yeah, yeah I mean it. You know, it, it stars. Uh, I'm blanking on Jake it. Gyllenhaal. Yeah, Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, really a transformative, uh, creepy performance. Amazing. And uh, he plays this uh, independent producer who gathers footage, uh, news footage as events unfold and sells that material to, to local news stations. And it's an indictment of the if it bleeds, it leads mentality of the news media. Mm. But that's also just a very provocative surface. Really underneath that surface 
it's really about it's taking a look at the american mythos of the self-made man the guy who pulls up his bootstraps and makes a career for himself which is what Hall's character is doing but it's what that ideal looks like in the hands of a psychopath yeah and so it's and that actually also has one of the most uh, interesting uses of music in the year james newton howard who's like done you know big film scores batman and others the recent batman films um a lot of the score while also indicative of the creepy nature of the film like when this character is psychotically pursuing his ambition Mm -hmm. um the music is blatantly heroic in style like it's like almost what you would hear from a superhero movie Uh and i heard some people saying man i hated the music in that thing and what I loved about it, it was so intentionally ironic. It was saying, uh, this this music score isn't the music score for the film. It's the music score for the life inside this guy's head. Yeah. This is the music of how this guy sees himself. And I just thought it was such a provocative way to use music in a movie. Uh, the other two films I'll highlight, Noah. Noah actually almost made it under my top ten. Hmm. Sure, it took big liberties with the scriptural text as well as with the nature of who Noah was. Uh, and it took huge liberties with Noah's character. In the Bible, there's a spiritual certainty. In the movie, there's definitely not. Uh, Noah even goes off the rails in the movie. Um, I haven't seen it. But the themes and message of Darren Aronofsky's very liberal rewrite of the Noah story, I felt were consistently, even powerfully, scriptural. Uh, especially as it relates to the nature of God and the consequences of sin. Basically, this what this film depicts is if you disobey god bad things happen (laughs) uh people are freaking corrupt (laughs) but if you submit to god there's grace and forgiveness to be given once you get back into alignment with what his will is so all of that plus it's just big a big bold piece of movie making and so it just hit my buttons and i'm an darren aronofsky fan right so that worked for me and then finally we talked about it before wild Mm -hmm. Uh, definitely one of the better films of the year and i'm glad it was on your top 10 list yeah absolutely nightcrawler's on mine as well uh it's one of those that i didn't know what to expect and then was just sort of taken for this ride and then could all day was just sort of arrested by this you know and then every time i thought about it 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 just opened up more and more Mm -hmm. just different layers to this thing but it is in so many ways as you were saying like this guy is, you know, he's this American ideal of the self-made man. And he's making his he own way with nobody's help. Nothing. And he tries several times and fails at the beginning of the movie. And then he kind of finds a thing that works and mm-hmm. that he becomes very good at. And he's can't be convinced otherwise that he is wrong. And everybody, even in his attempt to date in the movie, is all business. And and this the scene, the dinner date slash whatever it, business meeting, dinner scene with him and Rene Russo is... Is I had to rewind it. It's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, and there's another performance that I wasn't surprised she wasn't nominated, but I was like crossing my fingers that yeah. Renee Russo would get nominated. She's I haven't uh, seen her in a while. Either. Haven't seen her in a while, and you're just like that is a great performance. Yeah, yeah. and it, and he's almost get to the point where where he definitely starts crossing lines in the movie as far as journalistic integrity. I mean, from Absolutely. the beginning. Um, but it, and then it's the slippery slope that happens so fast, almost to the point where he is manipulating the story. And then the final scenes, which are, are so, you know, just kind of shocking and gruesome in their own way are, is sort of like his masterpiece. It's sort of like he's, he's concocted this whole thing and he's so proud of it in, in a weird way. And, and, uh, and, but I was just blown away. I just, this movie was not on my radar at all. I didn't mm-hmm. really know what it was, but I kept hearing people talk about it. And I was so glad that I checked it out. It was it almost made the top 10 number. If I had a number 11 or a 10.5, it would have been the Lego movie. 
Mm. Uh, I not only is it does, does I'm glad you mentioned it because it is great. Not as, not only does the Lego Movie work on on a uh, comedic level, like I I would say that it's one of the best comedies of the year. Uh, it's clever, vivid, uh, funny. Like I said, it's an oddly profound. Uh, it, you know, and it's all you have to remind yourself that it's all about these plastic bricks. <laughs> well, and I mean, yeah, and how it culminated. Yes, really got me. Oh my gosh! Really got I mean, there's so many. I mean, it's it's a movie about the powers of creativity, the fear of breaking away from the norm, uh, about friendship and embracing the sort of master builder in us all, the sort of thinking outside of the box. Uh, because and, you know, Jeff, I want to believe that everything is awesome, and uh, <laughs> I'm, it's a movie that I've revisited several times this year because it just makes me laugh. It's it, it's the film equivalent of like an Arrested Development episode where there's so much that happens so quick you almost don't want to laugh at the thing, the funny line because there's another one coming. And mm-hmm. uh, my favorite, maybe Morgan Freeman performance ever. Uh, but the, I Chris Pratt again. Chris Pratt. Mm-hmm. I mean, Will Arnett. I just mm-hmm. it, Nick Offerman is mm-hmm. is uh, as a, a pirate um, who is put together by by many uh, various different Lego blocks. It's amazing, and it's not. I feel like if if Into the Woods is that is that you know family film in verse, mm-hmm. I, mean, I feel like this is also in that same kind of realm where, in a sense, it's it's made for adults that kids can enjoy too. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I would put Life itself in the honorable mentions mm-hmm. category. The Roger Deaver documentary. Um, you, uh, I don't know if you had mentioned you had mentioned Imitation Game. Imitation Game. Is I a, did not mention. It's it. a movie that I I really liked. I I definitely went in with low expectations and was surprisingly moved. Um, by mostly the performances in the movie really really got me and I, I think I've I think Benedict Cumberbatch uh, just shows that he that he belongs in the category with all mm-hmm. these others yeah and, and, yeah uh, for me that was a movie that um, well like I said earlier in one sense it feels like Oscar bait it does it's it's better than the average Oscar bait I would I, yeah. I would I would put it in that as well uh, there's a movie that came out this year uh, independent comedy I, I put that with a question mark called Chef. Uh, with John mm, Favreau. I'm so glad that, you mentioned that. that. I almost made my top ten. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I love this movie. I, I did too. And, and I watched it a couple times since, and and I I liked it a lot when I first saw it. I kept waiting for there to be like cliche flaws and little things to drop in. And honestly, it just and, it, and then it ended. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, this is this mm-hmm. is so delightful. It's a great uh, you know father son mm-hmm. moments in it, and sort of uh, you know, and once again about an artist worrying about his legacy and, and worrying about like. Uh, He's is he the only one who's going to take the things that he's creating seriously? John Favreau in a tour de force uh, performance, elite wrote directed that he had to do on his own. Like I mean, I heard him in an interview say, you know, I wanted to. I nobody puts me in movies anymore as a lead role, and and so I had to go out and make my own. And I think there there's American ingenuity right there. I love and he he knocked it out of the park and uh, and and it's you you feel how personal it is for him. Yes, it is about this chef who's been caught up in a huge amount of success, but that success has kept him from being able to express his specific culinary sense as yeah. a chef. And it's such a clear direct metaphor to his Hollywood career as a director that he'd become so uh, sort of pigeonholed within this blockbuster thing, you know, from the Iron Man movies into some other films that he was just like... that. Hollywood wouldn't let him make the personal project. Mm. And so he had to quit Hollywood like this chef has to quit, quit his, his big high dollar job yeah. and just say, I'm going to I've got to make this food truck so mm. I can express myself as yeah. a chef. 
This is him saying, I have to express myself as a filmmaker, uncompromised, unadulterated, yet it's still very accessible. In the same way that in the movie, uh, you know, his friends are on his side and they believe in him and they go with him with this mm-hmm. new project. It seems like his friends went with him with this movie too. Mm-hmm. John Leguizamo and... Uh, Downey all, Jr. shows up at one point. I know, yeah, it was yeah, great, uh, little little performance. Uh, but it, it really was this was sort of like the little indie comedy that could for me, and mm-hmm. which just makes sense because that's sort of what the movie... Yeah. Is uh, I would put there's a movie called uh, Top Five that came out this year mm-hmm. with Chris Rock mm-hmm. that uh, that I I really enjoyed uh, and a lot of these are just like huh I'm surprised with how much I liked but uh, there's a movie another Reese Witherspoon movie The Good Lie did you see this movie love this movie and to me kind of along with what I was how I was describing Calvary mm-hmm. this is what Chris if we have to have Christian <laughs> movies which right. I'm actually not a fan of having right I won't get into my soapbox about that but if we have to have them. They need to be like this. Yeah. And it really ticks me off that the Christian audience didn't show up for this movie. It had the unfortunate... Uh, it debuted the same weekend as Left Behind. Oh, well, there so there was go. some bad strategizing <laughs> there. Um, but uh, people really need to check this out. It's on home video now. It's fantastic. And and I was really blown away. I kept waiting for it to my eyes to roll. And they they just teared up, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what happened instead. And I, I love that it's... it's sort of geared as a Reese Witherspoon vehicle, but really she's just a side character mm-hmm. and, and to tell this greater story. And it really is about this, about these uh, refugees from Nigeria, is it? Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember. Uh, uh, you know, or, yeah, I forget the exact kind. Oh, no, um, uh, Sudan. Sudan, Lost yes, Boys yes, of Sudan. Yes, yes, yes. And, they, and it, it really is focuses on them. And, uh, you know, and I feel, I love that Reese is sort of this high, a high profile enough actor that people would come to see it. And then you did the focus put on this, uh, essentially family that gets estranged that gets separated and they aren't even you know blood relatives all of them but it, mm-hmm. it really is a huge lesson in sacrifice and in family mm-hmm. and and uh in inspired what? by true story this is not yes. i mean it's a fictionalized narrative the actual characters aren't real life characters but they actually are played by real life uh, immigrant refugees mm. from Sudan, and so much of what is a part of this fictionalized story comes from their own experiences. Yeah, um, and so it really resonates on that level. Uh, they're not only good performances, but you really feel the personal aspect of it. And then even to your point about Reese, I don't. She doesn't show up in the movie until maybe thirty or forty-five minutes into the film. Forty-five right. might be stretching it. But and so the film's about these people first and foremost, and it's not just about white savior Reese coming along to save the day. Yeah, you know, um, it, it just it, it's it's powerful, but it's also beautiful. Uh, there's a lot of tender moments. Uh, really, that, that got me emotionally. I'm gonna cry. Yeah. Um, yeah. Highly recommend The Good Lie. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to throw a couple curveballs at you. Okay. You're not prepped for this. (laughs) Okay. Um, First of all, you might not be able to answer this first question because I might be stealing the thunder of another upcoming podcast. I don't know. But if I'm not, you can answer it. Okay. Um, We just talked about the best films of the year. Give me the best album of 2014. Oh, wow. The best album, in my opinion, I would say uh, Stay Gold by a band called First Aid Kit. Okay. They're a no, and, and this I almost did like a best of music podcast this year, and it sort mm-hmm. of got f- fell under the cracks. But it's this uh, young sister duo from uh, Sweden, but they they're very young, but their voices are so pure, and so they might as well have been Americana, uh, the, you know, from you know, like they, it's very it's this sort of like European 
idea like Mumford and Sons where it's like well, that, they're from, wait where are they from because this sounds like it could exist in both worlds and mm-hmm. they're very they're they're it's fantastic I mean as far as harmonies and songwriting go those are two of my favorite things <laughs> and and they just come together masterfully and it blows me away that they are they're I think they're 21 and 23 they're so mm. young and they've already this is their third album um and it's fantastic I would put also put Ginny Lewis's The Voyager in there and um Gosh, I think I had a list actually right next to this. Well, you're looking that up. Uh, I'll just throw out. Yeah, what, what my favorite you? album was basically my favorite discovery of the year. It, it's not a new artist, but an artist called The War on Drugs. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard them. And I don't know if that's a group or if it's just a single artist, like a, a guy who's that's his name, uh, his artist name. But um, it has, it's this indie rock atmosphere element. But with big influences of Bob Dylan, like the opening track uh, on the album, the album itself is called Lost in the Dream. Mm. Again, the artist is the War on Drugs. The opening track is called Under the Pressure, and you really hear a big Bob Dylan influence in that. Another favorite track is called Burning, and you hear a Springsteen influence in that. And yet it's still very much this guy's singular artistic expression. And uh, I mean, the best way I can categorize it is... Uh, I was on a work-related project in September, in fall, up in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. And I was driving wow. for about an hour through, you know, the beautiful fall countryside of New Hampshire. And this album was like the perfect soundtrack to that fall overcast atmosphere. Um, so, yeah, The War on Drugs. I love that. Uh, yeah. Any other music selections that you came across? I, the There was, honestly, like, a, this this year was not a big, like, new music year. It was actually mm-hmm. a year of going back and listening to a lot of older stuff. But uh, I would put, it, now it's sort of blown out and everybody knows who he is, but Hozier mm-hmm. had it put out on this year that's now everywhere. But uh, when I first heard it, there was sort of, I was like, why isn't this guy everywhere? And then, like, the next day, mm-hmm. it was one of those situations. But he, uh, you know, once again, I, I don't know what it is with all these these Europeans coming in and writing great music. It's <laughs> very new. I don't know, I don't know what it is. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, he his album has this these great elements of like soul and like 1960s rock and roll. And uh, just, I, I really enjoy his Hozier has this way of uh, throwing in the way he like throws metaphors to describe a situation is like, Oh, I've never thought of it that way. That's so interesting. So he, uh, Dave Barnes actually on the last podcast and I talked a little bit about, uh, he has a song on the wish I was here soundtrack uh, called cherry wine. That's, Excellent, so good. But that, those would probably be like my top three. Okay. And then, then uh, it's probably obvious at this point. The other question, and I'll answer my question first to give you some time to think about okay. it. Um, what was the best in television for you from 2014? For me, um, the best in television was, in one sense, it was a tie between True Detective and Fargo, the television series. It'll be the same answer. And the reason I, I tie them is because what those series are doing uh, with the anthology. Now, granted, I know the American Horror Story kind of started the whole anthology thing, so these guys didn't start it, but they've perfected it. Um, it's it's a whole new way for storyteller. It, it, it's really it's like a novel in television form, and, and and so I even think you know that's really what Lost unintentionally started by giving a definitive end to that series. Mm-hmm. It started creating this trend to say, well, what if we give a finite time period to explore stories? It just puts a lot more weight and heft into those stories when you're not having to try and perpetuate it over an unpredictable period of time. True. And um, and then not to mention, because of that finite time period, you can attract these top tier talents like Matthew McConaughey, Billy Bob Thornton and others. And so for me, I love what's happening in the uh, realm of anthology television series uh, making. 
And then the other one is Jimmy Fallon. I mean, <laughs> yes. you want to talk about, yeah, I mean, he was Entertainer of the Year by you know, Entertainment Weekly, mm-hmm. deservedly so, uh, love his sensibility, so many favorite moments, maybe my favorite moment uh, of the whole year was uh, when Nicole Kidman guest spotted. <laughs> if you haven't seen that, just Nicole Kidman, Jimmy Fallon, go to YouTube. It's like a nine minute interview, but oh my goodness, it... It's, it's the best. It's, it's the best. And he's the best. Yeah. And I'll use that hyperbole because he uses hyperbole, but his use of hyperbole is sincere. It is. And so is mine when I say he is the best. He's he, redefining uh, the late night talk show it's in true. all the best ways. Oh, I know. And in something that was at one time not too long ago called like a dying medium, like do we even need these late night shows mm-hmm. anymore? I think this is just reinvigorated it mm-hmm. for future generations. Yeah. I, that would definitely be in my, I didn't know that was in, I, I was thinking way more mm-hmm. uh, series wise, but that. Any other TV stuff that pops into your head that you I mean, True really Detective enjoy? and Fargo. I mean, mm-hmm. we, last time I was here, I think we talked about Fargo. Time is it a was, flat circle, man. <laughs> <laughs> you have been turning all your beer cans into little men as we've been talking <laughs> right, here. Right, right. Uh, but there, I, I was just blown away by that show, uh, by True Detective and Fargo. I feel like they're very similar. Um, I mean, not just the fact that they are little, are, are, wholly complete stories mm-hmm. um told over over the course of 10 to 12 episodes but there's there it's just amazing on how well these stories are being told and how much time you feel has passed and how much time has actually passed like mm-hmm. there's there madman does this really well too where you know don draper will spend two-thirds of an episode in california and then like a large chunk you know with lane getting drunk in new york city and you're like wait a second this is the same episode like because yeah, yeah. whatever whatever the writing whatever it is mm-hmm. it, it really covers a lot of ground and true detective does that where you're like this episode is taking forever and not covering much ground and then the next episode will be just be bam 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 mm-hmm. and I, it's just it's really it makes you the, as soon as you think you know where it's going with fargo and true detective mm-hmm. it's like oh really well how about this but but even with true detective in those uh, episodes where a lot of things aren't technically happening for me, it really was. I'm trying to remember Kerry Fujimata. Or I'm, yeah, I'm probably butchering that name. The, the writer director of the whole series. Um, I think all he was trying to do is he was like, all right, I'm just going to create a bare bones detective story as a platform for me to express deep philosophical thoughts and contemplations through these two characters. Yeah, and so even in episodes where there's not a lot, quote unquote, happening, I was just like. Man, I'm just blown away by what these guys are talking about philosophically. And it's just, that was mesmerizing yeah. to me. Just the ideas that were coming out, uh, you know, these characters. So, yeah, it was very fascinating. Um, anything else? In terms from, of- from the comedy TV? realm, I mean, it's always Parks and Rec for me. Yeah. I'm I'm... This season is proving to be, I don't see how it's going to end on a down note, but I'm, I'm incredibly impressed with how every season has its own overarching story, but how mm-hmm. well it's done and executed. Yeah. And in many ways where its counterpart, The Office, it was always compared to at the beginning, is sort of forgotten at this point, and where The Office sort of fell off and then maybe picked up a little bit at the end. Parks and Rec has just been a constant climb for me. Yeah, it's, it's, each season has been an ascent. And, and it, it's, yeah. I'm blown away. In so many ways, it's a live action Simpsons. Uh, mm-hmm. Like all these insane characters. Particularly Ron Swanson. Oh my but, gosh. But really it's, all of them. It's amazing how, how every character has its own just wholly complete like point of view. And the way that they weave them in and out and interact. They take two different characters and put them together 
for for a different story arc in each episode and you don't know how it's going to act but they just let them act the way that that character would respond mm-hmm. and it's perfect and mm-hmm. you're, it's it's it is almost like taking apart different parts of a jazz band and you're like okay now the trumpets are going to solo you know with the with the bass and you're like well that doesn't work but then it does you know mm-hmm. it's just like oh because they bring in different elements and extract different elements from a character mm-hmm. and just like in life like when you hang out with somebody that is seemingly different from you and whatever like it it you, the, a different part of that person's personality comes through that you wouldn't maybe didn't notice before. Well, and, and to your point about how it's Simpsons like, it has some of the best parodies of elements of our pop culture. Certainly throughout the course of the series, mm-hmm. uh, maybe the best version of that has how they parodied NPR. Yes. Um, but then the, specifically this final season, how it's parodying the uh, um, the uh, tech startup. Yep. And that whole culture and stuff, I mean, it's just this, so it's this hilarious satire of that tech culture and uh, sort of the millennial uh, expression, you know, through that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just, I mean, it has me LOLing, you know, or Ling ol or however it would be. Yeah. Sure. Uh, Grammatically. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. yeah. Uh, It just doesn't have a a weak link in the bunch for me. And they also know when to let go of characters and when to bring some in stronger and I love that, you know, it started with, you know, some and they let some go. I, I like mm-hmm. it when it was one one criticism I had about The Office was what, they would change things, you know, like, where it was like, oh, it looks like they're going this direction. And then by the end of the two arc episode, it would be back to where we were. Mm-hmm. And they were a little scared to jump, you know, and mm-hmm. do the season four Mad Men thing, if you will. Yeah. And, and I love how Parks is like, you know what? Like, who cares? Let's Absolutely. just throw everything against the wall and just trust that in this other zany world we created, that it'll be just as funny and hats off to them. And I, I'm, I'm excited about, it's the same way I was excited about 30 Rock and these shows that are come up, like of the shows that these shows will inspire. I'm stoked. But those will be my three probably favorite things about television right now or this past year. Very cool. Very cool. And I guess that wraps it up unless you've got any curveballs for me. Well, no, I don't. Okay. <laughs> I did wish I knew what we were going to do then. Or do you want to uh, yeah, so, go out with another musical score? Yeah. Um, so our final music track is from a film that was on both of our top tens. The film is Whiplash. Uh, certainly, as just as a score itself, it's a great jazz album. Um, and then uh, specifically, the title Whiplash is named after an actual piece of jazz music. And that's what we're going to close out on is that uh, classic jazz piece called Whiplash that embodies both sort of the spirit of the film as well as just saying, that's just great jazz music. So, Thanks, Jeff, for doing this. Thank I you very much. It. I really enjoyed it. And thank you guys for listening. <laughs>